together. Father, would you open your word to us now and help us to deal with the frustration, the futility, the difficulties, the afflictions that we face in this life and help us to deal with it specifically with the hope, the hope of a better world, the hope of a new Eden where we can go because of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would so speak to our hearts now that we would be those who do not shrink back to destruction, but who stand fast for the salvation of our souls. Lord, we ask that you do this for the glory of Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. And I suspect that there have been times in your life when you thought to yourself, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe, maybe you say that frequently. Maybe someone close to you says that frequently. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We, we human beings, we're restless. Sometimes we're exhausted. We're frustrated. We sense that what we're doing is meaningless. We experience painful toil and then death. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God has a, a secret will that results in it being this way, but in God's revealed will, God's revealed purpose, I think we could say, we were created to live in obedience without sin and death, in obedience in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And the good news of the gospel tells us that there is a way home. And before we consider that from the book of Hebrews, I, I want to I tell you about somebody that I think illustrates this restless sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. But I want to tell you about this person, hopefully in a way that doesn't spoil the novel for those of you who haven't yet read it. So in Charles Dickens's novel, A Tale of Two Cities, there is this character named Sidney Carton. And Sidney Carton has all the advantages of this life. He has intelligence. He has a great education. He has wonderful opportunities. He's, he's a, a, a capable and skilled person. He moves freely between the languages of French and English. He, he's in this British upper class. He has all the advantages, all of which he squanders. And as Dickens tells the story of this novel, A Tale of Two Cities, over and over again, you have this sense of, why don't you get yourself together? You could have such a great life. Why are you squandering all of your opportunities? And, and so Sidney Carton lives this life where he gets next to no sleep and he consumes excessive amounts of alcohol. And then he meets the heroine of the no novel, uh, a young lady named Lucy uh, Manette, and he is smitten with her beauty. And it's as though rising up within him, there is this sense of what he could have been. And, and the kind of wife he could have had. And he makes this sort of faltering start toward trying to become that kind of person only to fall back into the misery again. This is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Well, before I continue, I'm going I'm I'm to give you a spoiler with reference to my sermon. I'm going to tell you how these sermons on Hebrews are, are structured. So there's going to be an introduction and a conclusion, and we've just finished the introduction. And, and what I'm going to do next is I'm going to tell you about the context of Hebrews leading up to this passage, and then I'm going to exposit the passage in front of us, and that's going to be in the very middle, Hebrews 4, 8 through 13. And then after that, there's going to be some application and then some other comments on context that have to do with how this portion, Hebrews 4, 8 through 13, corresponds to a section at the end of the book of Hebrews, the end of Hebrews chapter 10. And then there's going to be a conclusion. And uh, maybe you can understand or maybe you know what kind of a structure I've just articulated for you. So the, uh, the, the, the movement of thought up to this point in the book of Hebrews, as we've seen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God has spoken in his Son. And again, he's speaking to probably Jewish Christians uh, who, if they were to remain in Judaism, they would avoid persecution, but uh, they have become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're facing the kind of persecution that you read at the, at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. And the author is telling them that what God has spoken in his Son completes and fulfills the Old Testament, so they should not go back to Judaism, even though that would get them out of persecution. And then in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, he outlines how the Son is greater than the angels, and, and so they should stay with the Son. And, and again, I think the reason, one of the reasons he's talking about this is because the Old Covenant revelation was made through the angels, and then in the New Covenant revelation, God has spoken in his Son. So 2, 1 through 4, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in the gospel. And then 2, 5 through 9, uh, backs up, supports, buttresses this, because it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. The world to come has been subjected to the Son, so we should pay attention to the new covenant deposit of revelation made in him. And then in 2, 10 through 18, the author explains how the Son was made like us, like humans, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And I've suggested that chapters 1 and 2 are a kind of unit of thought unto themselves. And then we come into chapters 3 and 4, where at the beginning and end, he's going to call us to look at Christ, our high priest, the high priest of our confession, to which we, we should hold fast as we draw near with boldness. So that's 3, 1 through 6. And in 3, 6 through 14, he, he explains how the wilderness generation did not enter God's rest. And it's important for us to understand that the rest that the wilderness generation did not enter was specifically the land of promise. And you could hear that in our call to worship this morning, where we read in the book of Joshua that after Joshua had conquered the land, the land had rest from war. Um, so this rest that, that Joshua gave to the, his generation was not experienced by the wilderness generation because of their sinfulness and disobedience in the wilderness. And then in 3.15 through 4.7, which is what we looked at last time we were together, um, he, he argues, really, what we see there in 4.3. We who have believed enter that rest. And again, he's not talking about a particular day of rest. He's talking about a, a, a way of living, a, a state of being, a rest in God because you know God. And we who have believed, we enter into that rest. And now here in 4.8 through 13... He's going to allude to the conquest generation of Joshua's day, 
And, and he's going to say that there's a, a rest that remains for the people of God. And, and here what he's talking about is the fulfillment of the land of promise, uh, entering into the new heavens and new earth to dwell in the presence of God. And then this, this whole section is going to conclude in 4, 14 through 16 uh, by returning to Christ, the, the great high priest, who, because of whom we should hold fast our confession and draw near to God. So that's kind of where we are, and, and I want to I suggest, again, that, that the author is making assumptions about what the Garden of Eden is about, and then what the Land of Promise is about, what the life of faith and, and living in communion with the church is about, in anticipation of the new heavens and new earth. All of these things, Eden, Land of Promise, communion with the, the saints in the church, in anticipation of of the new heavens and new earth, all of this has to do with walking with God. We might say in our language today, abiding in Christ. So the best thing about the Garden of Eden is that God walks there in the cool of the day. And then the best thing about the land of promise is that God is going to dwell in the temple in the midst of the people. And in both cases, Adam and Eve get thrown out, Israel gets thrown out. The best thing about being a Christian is walking with God, abiding in Christ with one another. And then the best thing about the new heavens and new earth is going to be knowing God, seeing his face. So this, I think, is what the author is getting at when he speaks of uh, this rest that we who have believed enter into in 4.3. And, and now, in 4.8 through 13, he's got this section where he's going to it's almost like this balances the wilderness generation section. 3, 6 through 14 was about the wilderness generation. They didn't enter. 4, 8 through 13 is about uh, the conquest generation. They, they did enter. But look at what he says here in Joshua chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua, and one of the striking things about reading the text in the, in the original is that in, in the Greek translation, the name Joshua is Jesus or Jesus. Joshua's name is, expelled exa is spelled exactly the same way Jesus' name is spelled. And so it's this, this sort of surprising, for if Jesus had given them rest, what are you talking about? Jesus didn't give them rest. And then you realize, oh, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, and we have to stop and think, because we just saw in our call to worship, Joshua eleven twenty three, 23, that Joshua gave the land rest. And then there, there, there are other statements like that in the book of Joshua. Near the end of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, sorry, verse 44, it says, The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their, their fathers. So what, is this a contradiction? Joshua's saying they had rest. The author of Hebrews is saying Joshua didn't give them rest. No, this is not a contradiction. This is an invitation to recognize that though they had rest from war, though their enemies were not now attacking them and driving them out of the land of promise, they weren't living in the Garden of Eden. They were still living in a fallen world. And the rest from war that they experienced was just a foretaste, just an anticipation, just like a teaser to return to the Garden of Eden, dwelling in the presence of God without sin, without death, without affliction, without back pain, without all of the other things that we, we, we struggle through. So if Joshua had given them rest, the author says, God would not have spoken 
of another day later on. And what he's, what he's getting at here, you know, he's been quoting Psalm 95. You can see in 3, 7 through 11, you've got this big quotation from Psalm 95 dealing with the wilderness generation. And he's talked about how David, there in 4-7, saying through David so long afterward, David uh, looked at the rest that the wilderness generation was not able to enter into back in, you know, 1440 B.C., 1446 B.C. And then David in 1000 B.C. said to his generation, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, because think about what he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. And what this does is it says, by David, to his generation, you can enter into the rest. And the author is saying, if Joshua had given them rest, David comes after Joshua, God would not have spoken of another day, another rest that people can enter into later on. And then he concludes in verse 9, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, I want to first say what this text does not say. You notice the author, this would be a great opportunity for the author to say something like this. What the Jews used to do on Saturday, we're now on the seventh day of the week, we are now going to do on the first day of the week. So we're going to take all that they would celebrate on the seventh day of the week, on the Sabbath, and we're going to roll that onto the first day of the week, and we're going to have a Christian Sabbath. He doesn't do that. And I I submit to you that it is nowhere in his purpose to communicate something like that. In fact, the the word that's that's rendered a Sabbath rest here is not the normal term used to translate the Hebrew Shabbat in the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, when you read about the Sabbath day, they use this Greek term there, sabbata or sabbaton, uh, to, to, to translate that. Here, this word occurs exactly one time in the whole Bible. All the Greek New Testament, only place, all the Greek, it never occurs in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this term sabbatismos. So I don't think the author wants to say, you Christians, what remains for you is to do on the Lord's Day what the Jews used to do on the Sabbath. No, I think what he's saying is, um, it remains uh, to enter into the Sabbath rest in terms of this Eden-like shalom experience of the presence of God, life in the presence of God in the new heavens and earth. I think that's what he's talking about when he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I submit to your consideration that he's been talking about this this rest all through the passage. And all through the passage, the rest has been a place, the land of promise, that the wilderness generation couldn't enter into. It, It was never referenced as a day. He does reference... Uh, the seventh day, back in 4.4, and he's about to speak of God resting from his works, but I don't think, again, his purpose, I think if he wanted to say, therefore you do on the day that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, what they used to do on the seventh day, he would need to spell that out, and he doesn't do that. So I submit that what he has in mind all through here is the way that God completed his work, he built the cosmic temple, and then like a king, he took up residence, he took up rest, within his place, and he has in view that Edenic rest, uh, living with God. Now, let me say also that if you disagree with me on that, that's totally fine. The, 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 the New Testament teaches in Romans 14 that if you think 
that one day should be treated as more holy than another, and somebody else thinks that all days are alike, each one should be convinced in his own mind. And then Paul says in Colossians 2 that no one is to take another captive uh, by a new moon or a festival or a Sabbath day, meaning we're not, we're not to be legalists with one another. We're not, to, we're not to say to one another, you don't hold to the Sabbath, you're antinomian. You're, 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 you're destroying the moral law of God and you're jeopardizing the gospel and you're teaching people to, to engage in loose living and licentious behavior. That is what we are not to do. Nor, nor am, as some, am I to say to somebody that in their conscience is convinced I should do on the Lord's day what, other, what the Jews did on the Sabbath, I'm not to say to them, well, you're a legalist. And you're, you're compromising the gospel by not believing in everything that Christ has accomplished. No. Now, I'm going to try to persuade you to my position. I'm going to try to uh, convince you that the way that I'm interpreting this text is, in fact, what the Sabbath was about. I, I think the, the seventh-day Sabbath celebration in Israel was kind of like a little, a little taste of life in Eden. You, you, ceased, from, you ceased from your, your labors to enjoy God. And, and I think that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that's how you're to live all the time now. We who have believed enter that rest, not on the Lord's day, all the time. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I think uh, the author of Hebrews would say Sabbath rest is supposed to be the ongoing experience of the Christian. You... you, you you abide in Christ. You dwell with him, and with him is fullness of joy, fullness of life. And you do this striving to enter into rest, the, the future uh, experience of the, the better Eden, the new heavens and new earth. So in verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest, not, in my view, not talking about the Lord's day, but rather talking about the new heaven and new earth, for the people of God. And then he continues here in verse 10, and he says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay, so whoever has entered God's rest, and, and uh, note again, verse 3, he says, We who have believed enter that rest. Now he's saying, there remains a rest in 4.9, and whoever has entered that rest, God's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let's think about um, the kind of works that God rested from. I think a lot of people are inclined to look at this passage and say, this must mean that I rest from my attempts to be justified by my works. But if we think about how God rested from his works, God was not doing the work of creation in order to achieve justification. So I don't think that's primarily what's, what's going on. I think the, the rest here in verse 10, whoever has entered into God's rest, is the rest in verse 9, the rest that remains. And so I think what he's talking about is what happens after you die. 
and then after you're, you're raised from the dead. And so the sense in which God was working at creation was the building of the project, and then he rested when his work was done. And I think the sense in which we're going to rest from our works as God did from his is when we've finished the race, and we've fought the good fight, and we've kept the faith, and we've completed everything that the Lord has appointed for us to do. And at that point, when our lives are over, we will rest from our works as God did from his. And, and at that point, uh, we, will, we will have, like the Lord Jesus, been perfected through our sufferings that we might dwell with God. You know, Hebrews 2.10, the Lord Jesus was perfected through what he suffered, and we who follow him are, are likewise to be perfected through what we suffer. So I think this is what the author has in, in view here. When he says in verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest, I think he's talking about that rest that remains, the, the, the experience of life in God's presence has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, I, I disagree with the paragraphing of the ESV. So in the ESV, verse 11 is a new paragraph. I think verse 11 goes with verses 8 through 10. So verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What rest is he talking about? I don't think, I think he, he's talking to believers. He's, he's, he's uh, presenting a sermon in a church. So I think he's talking to people that he thinks have believed and entered into the rest of faith, 4-3, and he's urging them to strive to enter that rest, speaking of the rest that remains, the, the glory in the afterworld in 4-9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest, a Sabbatismos for the people of God, the new Eden, the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, the fulfillment of the land of promise. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And if you ask me, well, what does that look like? What do we do to strive to enter that rest? Finish the race. Keep the faith. Complete the lifelong work that God has given to you. Be perfected through suffering as Christ was perfected through suffering. Strive to enter that rest. Persevere. Hang on. Keep going. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now, uh, I think that he, he's really getting at here in 4, 8 through 11, he's getting at the opportunity to enter into the new and better Garden of Eden. And I think that informs what he goes on to say here in 4, 12, and 13. And I think in verses 12 and 13, we should remember our Old Testament reading before we walk through these verses. You remember the Old Testament reading, the man and the wife, man and his wife, Genesis 2, 25, were naked and not ashamed. And then uh, the serpent is actually described as naked in a crafty sort of way. And then they eat of the forbidden fruit and their eyes are opened. And they know that they're naked and then they hide themselves. And then, then they're called to account. And, the, and there's a judgment. And in that judgment, God keeps asking these questions. And he keeps exposing what they've done by means of his word. And then... They're driven out of the garden, and there's a cherubim and a flaming sword placed there. I think all of that background informs what the author says here in 4.12 and 13. Because 
If you're going to enter into the new Eden, I think, I think if you're informed by Genesis 3, one of the things you're, you're going to think is, how am I going to get past the cherubim and the flaming sword? Now, with that question in mind, look at what he says here in 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, just think about the logic here of what I'm suggesting. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. A lot of patristic interpreters, probably most patristic interpreters, identified the word of God here with Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Modern interpreters have, I think, almost universally rejected that and said, no, this is speaking of like the gospel message or, or you know, the word of God in the sense of scripture. I don't think we have to have a hard and fast division between those two because think about Hebrews 1. Uh, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us. God spoke to our fathers uh, by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So I, I kind of want to do a both and here and say, well, the gospel message comes to us in the Lord Jesus. God spoke to us in his son, and he is identified elsewhere as the word. So if the Lord Jesus has spoken words to you that would assure you that sword is not going to destroy you if you try to make your way into the garden. I think we can understand the author of Hebrews saying, uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And if the, the message, the word of God that, that is communicated to you, in a sense, from the Lord Jesus, through the scriptures, says to you, on the basis of what Christ has done, because of what he has accomplished, you can, with confidence, approach that sword and not fear it falling on you. I think this is what the author is trying to communicate here in 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. I don't think he's speaking in scientific or, or mod modern you know, biological or psychological terms here. I think he simply means to speak in terms of what we are bodily and what we are spiritually. And, and, and what, he, what he seems to be saying is the word of God addresses us both physically and spiritually. The word of, of God addresses everything that we are as human beings. And, and as the word addresses us, look at what it does there in the middle, at the, near the end of verse 12, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word, it's like God, by means of his word, is sorting out your motivations, exposing them, piercing them, convicting them, and, and the word is, is parceling out your thoughts, some of them righteous, some of them shameful, and, and, and worthy of repudiation and con condemnation. The word is piercing everything you are, and it's discerning, it's, it's distinguishing between your thoughts and your intentions. And then verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. You know, you can think of the way that the man and the woman knew that they were naked, and so they cover themselves up with fig leaves, and then they try to hide from him. No creature 
is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. He sees right through the sham ways that we try to cover up what we've done. The, the sham ways that we try to hide what we've been thinking about. He sees right through it. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And, and I think you can think here of the way that, that the Lord so gently, so patiently said, Adam, where are you? And, and it's like Adam comes forward and, and uh, the, he says, well, I, I, I was naked and so I hid from you. Well, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? The Lord just keeps coming with these questions. And he's not going to let any sinner get away with sin. The, the Lord is going, his word will expose sin. So the word convicts us of our sin. It exposes our need for Christ. And it convinces us that he can escort us past the flaming sword safely into God's presence. So if, if we were to kind of summarize the message of Hebrews 4, 8 through 13, look again at verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Let me reformulate that statement and, and put it in a different way. God spoke of another rest through David in Psalm 95 because Joshua did not achieve its fulfillment. Joshua took people into the land of promise. He didn't take people into the new Eden. So God spoke of another rest, 4-9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 4-9, a fulfillment of Edenic Sabbath rest remains for God's people in God's presence in the resurrection. 4-10, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This fulfillment, the fulfillment of the Edenic Sabbath rest, this fulfillment is God's rest. And just as God rested from his work, those who enter God's rest rest from their work, their lifelong work. 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He has in view the disobedience of the wilderness generation. So rather than follow the example of the wilderness generation, strive to enter, persevere in faith. 4.12, the first part, the word of God is living and active. God's message and God's son, both are alive and effective. They accomplish their purpose. Sharper than any two-edged sword. God's message is, is, is sufficient to take you past the flaming sword of the cherubim, guarding the way to the Garden of Eden. And, and if you think about the Old Testament, not only do we see that figure there at the Garden of Eden, when Balaam in Numbers 22 is approaching the camp of Israel, what does he meet? He meets the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in his hand. Because the camp of Israel is where God has taken up residence in the tabernacle. And then when Joshua is crossing, he crosses the Jordan into the land of promise. Joshua 5, end of the chapter, what does he meet? He meets the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in his hand. As you approach God's very presence, you can expect to encounter this angelic figure with a drawn sword. And the word of God is sufficient to get you past that danger. The next part of verse 12, uh, when, when, when the author writes, uh, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, 
We could say the word pierces to the root of who human beings are, both spiritually and physically. The Bible attests that it's not only good for you spiritually, it's also healing to your flesh. And, and I think it's getting at the way that if you embrace the Bible, you, you live by the Bible, your whole life will get better. You'll sleep better. You'll be healthier. I mean, I'm not giving you health, wealth, prosperity here. I'm trying to quote Psalm 19. Uh, the next statement uh, there in, in verse 12, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the word of God sorts out and evaluates our heart's thoughts and intentions. The first part of 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. Adam and Eve couldn't hide, and you won't be able to either. And then finally, uh, the next part of verse 13, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Fig leaves won't cover what you have chosen and done. He called Adam and Eve to account, and you too will answer. So, strive to enter the city that has foundations. You may be here this morning, and you're thinking, uh, this guy's talking about this Garden of Eden at the beginning, and this new and better garden at the end, and he's talking about a hope of being able to re-enter this, this way of living that God uh, intended for humans when he made us, and I'm not even a believer in Jesus. If you're interested in this, for you, striving to enter takes the form of coming to understand the gospel, coming to believe the gospel. And we would love to talk with you about what that looks like. If you'd like to have a conversation about all your objections to the gospel, please come find me or Matt or Denny or any one of the other elders. You could probably start talking to the guy next to you or the girl next to you, and they could lead you to somebody that can have this conversation. But you should strive to enter this rest. Strive to enter the city that has foundations. So here are your applications here. Strive to enter the city that has foundations because... It remains for some to enter God's Edenic work-finished rest. It remains for some to enter. So you should strive to enter because fullness of life is to be had in the presence of God. There is fullness of joy in your presence. You make known to me the path of life. The word of God will be enforced. And you will give a word in response to it. The word of God is living and active, him to whom we must give account. The word of God will be enforced. You will give a word in response to it. Uh, next time we're together, we'll see in 4.14 through 16 what kind of word we're going to give. We're going to point to him and say, he's our high priest. He, he's, he's done everything that needs to be done. He's opened the way for me. That's, that's the word that we're going to give. And this word is more powerful than the flaming sword that keeps you out and the ways you try to hide. The word will expose the ways you try to hide, and the word will take you past the flaming sword. So believe, trust Jesus. The word pierces us physically and spiritually, leaving us open to God, and we want that. So give yourself to the word. Study the word, let the word expose where you need to change, and then take action. The word of God, it, it, as he says here, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the word of God sorts out our motivations and secret thoughts. And we need that. We need the word to sort out the way we think about things. We need the word to sort out what our motivations are. 
We need it. I think that this whole passage corresponds to Hebrews 10, 26, through the end of of the chapter, 26 through 38. Uh, And there, um, the author urges people, 1026, not to go on sinning deliberately because there's no longer any sin, any, any sacrifice that remains for sins. And he urges people, like in 1031, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God. If you, if you approach that flaming sword trying to get into God's presence, and your sins have not been dealt with by the Lord Jesus, and you're not resting on the promises of Scripture that because of Christ you can enter, that fearful thing will be yours. You will fall into the hands of a living God. It's a fearful thing. And then at the end of Hebrews 10... The author says in 1037 and 38, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And and all through the book, you know, he's urging them to have confidence to draw near. So it's like the day of the second coming has come, and the Lord Jesus arrives in flaming fire. And in, in all his glory, with 10,000 and thousands upon thousands of holy ones with him. And what's going to happen on that day? Are you going to shrink back? Or are you going to draw near? Look at verse 39 there. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who, that's who we are. We're going to draw near to the Lord Jesus at his coming. So this is not the way it's supposed to be. But God has a new and better Eden for us, a rest beyond all we know here. In, in that novel, Tale of Two Cities, uh, Sidney Carton comes to a place. I don't want to give spoilers here. Uh, Jed, you haven't read the book yet, right? You have read the book. Well, some of you haven't read the book, and you are in for a treat. You should read this book. It's fantastic. Sidney Carton comes to a place where he does something that is utterly Christ-like. And, and as he approaches this, he says, he says these words that maybe you know from the Batman movie. They're quoted at the end of one of the Batman movies. He says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. And he's talking about this, this Christ-like act that he's about to give himself to. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. There is a rest, and there's a way to that rest, and it leads through the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news that tells us that there's a way home and that tells us of the one who opened it for us through his own flesh. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed make us those who do not shrink back to the destruction of our our souls and our bodies, but rather those who stand with those who believe the gospel, those who with confidence draw near to the risen King coming in glory. And Lord, help us to keep believing that there is a happy land where saints in glory stand, where they sing 
Worthy is the Savior King and praise Him forever. Help us, Lord, to keep the faith, to strive to enter the rest all the way to the end. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.